Well, <clears throat> Michael Breslin was a new father. And he wasn't about to let his wife's first Mother's Day pass uncelebrated. But she was a nurse, and that particular Sunday, uh, she was working at the local hospital, and so they weren't able to celebrate Mother's Day at home. Uh, so Michael put his new son, Jason, in the baby carrier, drove to the hospital, and in front of um, all the patients and co-workers, he surprised Miriam with chocolates and flowers and balloons that said, world's greatest mum. And it was a fantastic Mother's Day. Uh, but after celebrating, it was time for Miriam to go back to work. It was time for little Jason and Michael to head off home. And so Michael gathered together all the things that had been part of the celebration, the chocolates, the flowers, the balloons. And he said it wasn't as much fun taking them out of the hospital as it was taking them in to surprise his wife. So he tossed the chocolates on the front seat, got the flowers arranged on the floor with a uh, wooden tip over. He put the balloons in in the back, out of the wind, and everything arranged, he headed off home. On the way home, uh, people began flashing their lights at him. And so he thought, ah, there's a speed trap coming up. I'll slow down. Uh, but it wasn't until he hit the 80K area on the bypass that um, he found out what they were flashing him for. Because as he hit the 80K, he heard a scraping noise go down the roof followed by a loud thump, and he watched in horror in the rearview mirror as the baby carrier bounced off the boot onto the road and began to slide along the road behind the car. He slammed on his brakes, screeched to a halt, and uh, ran back down the road to see if his son was okay. And as the waves of guilt and fear and relief flooded him, he just burst out crying on the roadway. Jason was okay. A passing policeman stopped and gave him a ticket. The local newspaper wrote the story up and a reporter uh, interviewed his wife who showed amazing understanding and said, it's so unlike him. He really is a good father. And when I read that, uh, a part of me thought, how could he possibly do that? How could you stick your son on the roof and forget about him? And then another part of me thought, hey, I can be like that too. Uh, we all recognize the mistakes that we've made, the dumb things we have done, just born out of hurry or frustration or distraction. And then again, there's a whole bunch of dumb things that we've done that we've actually done on purpose. And we know that there is enough of Michael Breslin in us that we could be guilty of things too. I mean, we're human. And when we make mistakes, there is always someone there to remind us. Uh, when we make mistakes, it's easy to feel defeated, to feel discouraged. Uh, it's easy to feel like giving up because that's exactly what the enemy wants you to do. And he wants you to feel like there's no hope. He wants you to give up, to quit. But that's exactly the opposite to what God wants for you. 
So I want you to turn to the book of Zechariah this morning in chapter 3. How many people know where the book of Zechariah is? Come on. John knows because... <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's the second from the end of the Old Testament, all right? Uh, but it'll be up on the big screen if you haven't bought your Bibles, and I'm reading for the new, from the New International Version there. And it says this in Zechariah chapter 3, and starting at verse 1, it says, Then he showed me, this is Zechariah talking, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I've taken away your sin and I've put fine garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. And in verse 8, and there's a real key here in verse 8 to interpreting this. It says, listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, you who are symbolic of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant the branch. See the stone I've set in front of Joshua? There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. Imagine the godliest person you know. And by the way, if it's you, you're in trouble. At this particular time, Israel is God's chosen nation. It's supposed to be the godliest nation on earth. And this is at the time uh, Zechariah was prophesying at the time when, the, uh, when Israel had gone back uh, to uh, Jerusalem, to the remnants of the city. And um, Joshua is the high priest of this nation, so he's supposed to be the godliest person in the godliest nation. He's supposed to be the one who will dot all the I's and cross all the T's. He's supposed to be God's representative on earth. And Joshua is standing before God, and there standing right next to him is Satan. And Satan is accusing him. And that's nothing new for Satan, because if uh, we were to read in Job chapter 1, we find that um, Job is described as the most righteous person on earth, and Satan is accusing Job in that situation as well. So you've got Satan accusing the righteous Job and Joshua. So if he can accuse guys like that, what can he do to us? In Revelation 12 verse 10, we're told that Satan is accusing us, the saints, day and night. He's relentless. And when I read this passage, it reminds me that every single person here needs the grace of God. And we've been singing about that this morning. We've been singing about God's amazing grace. It doesn't matter how good we are. It's not good enough even on our best day. Imagine that tomorrow morning, 
You set your alarm for six o'clock and you get up at six o'clock in the morning and you have an hour of prayer and Bible study and soaking in God. And then you walk out into the kitchen and you see the kitchen sink is just absolutely full of dirty dishes. And you look at those dishes and you say, bless God, what a wonderful opportunity to serve. And without complaining and without being asked to do it, you just, you just do all the dishes. You get ready for work and you go out to your car and the garage and it's nearly out of petrol. And you say, praise the Lord. I know I'm running a little bit late, but God obviously wants me to go to the petrol station and witness the people there. So you jump in your car and you pull out and you haven't been driving very far and a guy cuts you off in the car and as he just about causes an accident and as he goes past, he gives you the universal one-fingered sign and you think, oh God, oh Lord, it's so fantastic that you have accounted me, that you have allowed me to be persecuted. Because when I'm persecuted, I'm blessed. You get to the office. You walk in the door. And one of your colleagues looks at you and says, what's different about you this morning? You say, well, I'm different because I've just spent the morning with Jesus. And you proceed to lead him and all your other colleagues to the Lord. They leave their jobs and and go onto the mission field. At lunchtime, you're wandering down the town basin and you're just so caught up in the presence of God, you don't even notice when you step out onto the water and just keep on walking. (laughs) On that day, on that day, the Bible tells us that our righteousness is as filthy rags. And we still fall short of God's standards. You know, the law of God, which none of us can fulfill. Especially when Jesus said, guys, I know it says in the Old Testament that you can't commit adultery. But as soon as you look at a woman with lust in your eyes, you've committed adultery in your heart. The standards are so much higher than just the physical Ten Commandments. They're given so that we would know that we can't meet God's standards. Even the Apostle Paul, who wrote half the New Testament, said in Romans chapter 7, verse 18, I know that nothing good lives in me. Man, this is the guy who had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus Christ. This is the guy who saw miracle after miracle after miracle. He says, I know that there's nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. How many people here, no, don't put up your hands, have had that experience? You just do stuff that you don't want to do. And he goes on in Romans 7, 24, what a wretched man am I. This is the Apostle Paul talking. He is... He realizes that we were born with a bias towards sin. It's like that bowling ball 
uh, that you see people on the telly. They bowl it and it curves in one direction. Anyone who's got kids know that it's in our nature to be biased towards sin. So Satan is accusing Joshua just like he accuses you and I. And while Satan is the father of lies, and he very rarely tells the truth, when he accuses us, he doesn't need to accuse us of stuff we haven't done. We have all given him a lot to work with, and he will remind you of all that stuff that you have done wrong. We are really really guilty. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and just gently say, you're guilty. (laughs) You know, Romans 3.10 says, no one is righteous, not even one person. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Satan's accusations always aim to cause us to focus on our sin. That brings discouragement. That brings pain. That brings hurt. That brings a sense of hopelessness. And he tries to convince us that we are in a battle that we can't win. One that is lost from the very, very beginning. He says, No matter how hard you try, you can't live up to God's standards. And he's right. There is nothing we can do of ourselves to make ourselves clean before God. If you've ever been or had anything to do with people with addictions, such as alcoholic or drug abuse or, or gambling, and uh, I have uh, been involved with people like this, you'll know And if you've been one of these people, you'll know that it is impossible for a person with addiction to fix themselves. It it just doesn't happen. It can't happen. They need outside intervention. And people, we are born with an addiction to sin. We can't fix ourselves. No matter how hard we try, we're always going to fall over. We need outside intervention. Christmas before last, uh, December uh, 2015, Penny and I bought a new car. Our previous car had run its course, and so we bought a new one. And it was fantastic. It was, uh, when I say new, it was a demonstration car. It had 100 kilometers on the clock. And I got $17,000 off the new car price. What an absolute miracle uh, this was. This was just God's blessing to us. So I picked up the car in Auckland. Penny uh, went on to Hamilton in another, um, in another vehicle. And I got home. And um, man, I looked good. Not a scratch, not a bump, nothing. 100K is all it had done. And so I thought, oh, I'll shoot down to Super Cheap Auto and I'll get some chamois uh, for the car so I can clean the windows inside and everything else. So I, I drive on down there and um, 
there wasn't a parking place just in, directly in front of um, Super Cheap, so just a little bit further down there, I pulled into park. What I didn't realise was that the, the footpath sloped down and away. And so instead of there being that much curb where I was pulling into, there was that much curb. And also the curb had plates into it with bolts sticking out about this far. Brand new car, I pulled up into it and I hear the as I hit one of these bolts. So I got out. Penny hasn't even seen the car. I get out and I find this big dent in the, in the front bumper. And I am sick to my stomach. Not of there being a dent in the front bumper, but, but the fact that Penny hasn't even seen it. I didn't know what to do. Anyway, I went down to the um, local, uh, not, I was going to say wreckers, but not wreckers, panel beaters. And it, unfortunately, it's a person that I had um, seen a number of times. And, <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, he's a really, really good, a really, really good man, a brethren man. And um, he looked at my situation. He looked at my teary eyes. And it's about two weeks before Christmas, and he says, oh, come on, just drive around the back and we'll see what we can do for this. He gets in there, takes his blowgun out, and, um, and just after about 15 minutes, he'd, he'd pop the bumper out, and you couldn't see a thing. And he didn't even charge me, which was real, really good. But what was even, yeah, what was his name? <laughs> and... Um, what was even better was because you didn't even see, couldn't see anything, I didn't have to tell my wife. <laughs> I didn't tell her for six months. <laughs> it was six months before I told her about that. <laughs> and I just had to make sure that you couldn't see anything in the front. <laughs> but the reality is... I needed outside intervention to sort out my sin, sort out the dumb thing that I had done. And Joshua, the righteous priest, is standing before God. He's dressed in filthy rags. And as we read in verse 8, that isn't symbolic of things to come. That is symbolic of us being covered by our sins. And in and of ourselves, there is no hope. We are sunk. We are guilty. But note what happens as Joshua stands accused by Satan. Verse 2, it says, The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning snick, stick? I don't know why I keep on saying snick. A burning stick. Stretch, snitch. <laughs> I haven't had anything to drink, I promise you. <laughs> no, no communion wine, no, it's all good. Let me start that again. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? See, God knew what you were going to do even before he created you. He knew the dumb stuff that we were going to do, but God created us anyway. 
And God has arranged for the eternal payment to be made for all of our sins, you see, because God sent his perfect son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to once and for all pay the price for sin and everything that Satan will accuse you of. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. See, because Jesus was perfect and died for us who have sinned, then Jesus gives us the opportunity to ask him to forgive us our sins, to wipe the slate clean, not because we deserve it, not because we've been good, but because he loves us and has paid the price for us to be made sinless in God's eyes. I think it's amazing that the Bible describes our sins being separated from us as far as the east is from the west. You see, we know how far the north is from the south. We can measure that. We can measure from the North Pole to the South Pole, but how far is the east from the west? It's immeasurable. You keep on going and you're going as far. You just keep on going. And if you're heading in an easterly direction, you just keep on going and you're just going east, east, you keep on going. If you head in a northerly direction, you'll get to the point where you're heading north, 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 and then you get over the North Pole and you start to head south. But from the east to the west, there's an eternal separation. Symbolically, Joshua's dirty clothes are taken off. His sin is taken off and it's replaced by clean clothes. So he can stand clean before God. And what makes us clean before God is the shed blood of Jesus Christ, who is God's provision for our cleanliness. You know, every parent knows that we are born with an inbuilt protective nature and attitude towards our kids. If someone is messing with our kids, we want to sort them out. Isn't that true? And there's some big bear mothers here who you wouldn't want to mess with if you're messing with their kids. And if that's how we feel as imperfect parents towards our kids, how much more does God feel about his kids when the enemy starts to mess with them? John 1.12 says, but as many as receive him, that's talking about Jesus, uh, to them he gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. In other words, if you've asked Jesus Christ to come into your life and forgive you of your sin, if you have accepted Jesus' death on the cross as his payment for your sin, then you're a child of God. And he has provided the power and the weapons for you to defeat the enemy and the battle within, with our sinful nature, which looked lost and which looked hopeless and impossible to win, then becomes nearly impossible to lose. Because as children of God, we have the Holy Spirit within us, quickening our bodies, and we have access to God's spiritual weapons. Now, in Ephesians 6.12, it says that our, 
Our struggle isn't against flesh and blood. It's against rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil and heavenly realms. And it was God's word that responded to Satan's accusations. God said, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. And God gives us weapons to fight with, 2 Corinthians 10, 4. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. When you are thinking, there are three sources of your thoughts. There is right now, you are going through an internal conversation. Some of you are saying, what on earth is he talking about? But basically, your thoughts are going to come from three places. They're either going to come from, your, from yourself, they're either going to come from the Holy Spirit, or they're going to come from the enemy. And discernment is knowing what those thoughts source is. And that verse tells us that we can take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. It's the Word of God that we fight with that destroys the arguments and the accusations of the enemy. And not just the words that we speak. And just as Satan is accusing us day and night, Hebrews 7.25, talking about Jesus, our great high priest, says, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. So it's not just that we are battling against the enemy with God's words, but Jesus Christ is actually interceding for us. He's laying a platform for those words to have power for those words to have their effect, for those words to pull down the accusations that Satan would have us try and believe. And therefore, it comes to Romans 8 verse 1, which comes after those passages that we read about Paul being so sinful and no hope and everything else. And he goes on to write this. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and say, there is no condemnation, condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. You can say it better than I can. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Because Christ Jesus... Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Back in the 70s, we used to sing a song. There is no condemnation for them in Christ Jesus who walk every day in the Spirit of the Lord. And that sums up that, that, that verse. Satan will keep on accusing you. It's in his nature it's his job profile. It's what he enjoys doing. But when the enemy tells you 
that you are a dirty, rotten sinner, you can say, yes, I've sinned, but when I confess my sin, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleansed me from all of my sin, so I am clean before my Lord, and I can live clean, and I can live forgiven instead of living defeated. Amen? We have a reply, Romans 12, verse 10. The accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. That's what's going to happen to him. The enemy is going to be defeated. And in verse 11, it says, They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, and the word of their testimony. Two things, two keys to breaking the power of accusation in your life. Rely on what Jesus Christ has done and begin to speak the truth of God's word. We are more than conquerors. We have victory over Satan's accusations. And we need to begin to believe what God says in his word. Let's have the musicians. We are more than conquerors because Jesus says we are. We are precious. We are the head, not the tail. We have a future. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. We are the apple of his eye. We are a child of God. We are that pearl of great price that God gave up everything to buy us back. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And you don't need to get approval from other people in order for you to feel as if you are somebody. Because you are somebody because you are a child of God. You don't have to have a lot of money to be a somebody. You just have to be a child of God. You don't have to have a a great university degree or work in a prestigious, prestigious company to know that you are somebody, to know that you have worth because you have worth and you have somebody. You are somebody because Jesus Christ says you are. You are a child of God. You have the most precious thing in the universe dwelling within you, His Holy Spirit. You don't have to be physically beautiful to know that you are somebody because you're somebody because you're God's son or God's daughter. And the enemy has sown lies into your situation and circumstances and he's tried to get you to believe that you are something that you are not. And it's time, people, for you to break the power of those accusations. They're going to keep on coming. But the reality is we have been given the power to be able to pull those down and to begin to believe what God says about you and live the way that pleases God. Amen. Why don't you stand with me this morning?